Stay tuned for the Renewable Energy Hour. Good evening, Mendonesia. As as has been the case for the last 21 years, uh, I'm Doug Livingston, co-host of the Renewable Energy Hour. 21 years ago, I was co-hosting with uh, with Michael Hackleman, who started the show with Steve Heckeroth, something like 26 years ago, and it's been going ever since. Uh, had Jeff Oldham in there for a long spell, I think more than 10 years, and. Normally, I would be introducing Alex Aragon, but he's got a crazy schedule, as many people in this industry do, but he's got some other compounding factors besides being too full of work. He's also got some surgery coming up and helping to move uh, one of his children out of state, and so he's requested a couple months off. So, uh, we actually have a guest co-host tonight. Um, and hopefully for several more of the shows over the next two months, uh, and that's Chris Love. And I know Chris mostly from his articulate calls and useful information during the show, but I'd like to welcome Chris on board. Hello, Chris. Thanks for joining us and covering for Alex. Hello, Doug. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Probably more than yours with your busy factor. I'm I'm semi-retired, so I'm not nearly as stressed as you guys out there full time are getting yeah. hauled right and left. And I get to say no when I want to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't for this right now, I would still be sitting behind the computer doing paperwork for upcoming jobs. Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> nothing worse than paperwork. Although, although and if so you're much actually more than there used to be, if, if you're you're crunching and designing and figuring out the right way to do things, that's fun. But when it's red tape paperwork, that's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, bids and contracts and permits and plan sets and mm-hmm. oh yeah, mm-hmm. good lord. So, what we're going to do today is um, mostly spend some time introducing you. Uh, we we had a series with uh, Jeff Oldham back in the day where we had a bunch of local contractors on and I can imagine this could fulfill that duty as you know highlighting a local contractor but also getting to know you because you'll be with me at least several more times in the next in the next couple months and 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 we might try to talk you in once you slow down to taking over for one of us when we finally decide to retire or at least being a a guest co-host here and then when, we when, can always we do like my parents used to say. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> uh, my mine was we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah, yeah. This is the not the no, not the yes. You know, we'll cross but, that bridge when we come to it. For sure. So, how did you get into solar? What's your what's your work history? Um. So you know, if you can bear with me for a moment, you know, like. We just discussed ourselves on the side. I grew up in Florida, um, kind of fell into a couple scenarios when I, in my early 20s. Ended up hiking the Appalachian Trail, got really interested in the backcountry and wilderness, um, and ended up kind of falling in with a girlfriend, and we moved to Siskiyou County wow. in the northern reaches of California, kind of stuck between Del Norte and Modoc County. 
um, and lived on the Salmon River for about five years. And as a result, you know, everything on the Salmon River, with the exception of the first uh, few miles of the main stem, is completely off-grid. Um, and so I lived in a little, you know, quote-unquote commune for about five years where it was originally a gold mine. Uh, they had power before San Francisco did out there, <laughs> running off the creek. Yeah. Um, power in a hotel and street lights, and, you know, thousands of people living in this tiny valley mining gold. Um, you know, and a bunch of hippies slash diggers bought the place back in 68 and it's still there. And, um, so this kind of reaches back to a uh, home power magazine. Oh, great. Great. And memories. one of the, yeah, one of the originators of home power is a gentleman named Bobbo. Bobbo Schultz. And, yep. He is absolutely one of the original pioneers of, you know, off-grid solar of all sizes. He, he and Richard Perez. Yep. And so, you know, I ended up getting interested because they had a pretty small power system. You know, of course, back then we're dealing with like a little trace. I think it was an SW3024, I think, maybe. Uh, or thirty twelve, something like that. You know, we had yeah, micro hydro twenty four twelve or something like that. Yeah, I don't think they had a thirty. Yeah, so it was it was one of the white with the green mm -hmm. um, trim, and they had micro hydro at the time. And then I think it was in the summer of oh one. We had a really really dry year up there. It was the first year anybody had ever had any problems with the drinking water spring or the microhydro supply. And so the local kind of electrical wizard, which is, you know, the former Karuk chief up there, um, you know, he brought a couple solar modules up with his guy and a charge controller to help keep us going because we really just needed lights and a car stereo and our CB to run so we could communicate <laughs> with the fire tower and know what was happening with fires. That sounds like my first system um, in, in 82 was uh, four lights, a car stereo, and God, there was something else. What was, what was the other thing? That may have been it, four lights and yeah. a car stereo. Yeah, and so we had, I think, four L16s total. Pretty small little system, you know, it was totally fine for us. And this is back when LEDs were really expensive. Mm -hmm. And so we had RV 12 volt DC LED lights that were like 25 bucks a piece. Mm -hmm. kind of oh, they thing. were worth it then when oh, yeah. solar panels were <laughs> five, six bucks a watt. Yeah. And when you had minimal micro hydro and you're running off a Ford Motorcraft alternator, <laughs> you know. But when the water was plentiful, we were we were great. You know, um, everything else was taken care of with that, with the exception of the wood shop. That was the old 1940s Wisconsin generator, you know, to fire up the, the planers and all that stuff. But so that's kind of where I started. You know, I mean, as far as solar goes, you know, my electrical goes back to Florida when I lived there. And the, I started my first real job was working on an airport air wing, you know, putting in water pumps the size of a, you know, a full-size pickup kind of thing and <laughs> 600 volt switch gear that's eight foot tall and five feet wide with, you know, 500 MCM cables, you know, bigger than your thumb. Did you, in did you get it. a contractor's license back then in Florida? No, I didn't. I was just an employee and, um, you know, and so that, that I didn't get a contractor's license until I ended up moving to Mendocino County. You know, I moved here in 05, 
um, mostly because, you know, suddenly there was a kid on the way, and uh-huh. now I needed to have a real job. A real job um, and have a hospital within a two-hour drive. Yeah, you know, living in Siskiyou on the Salmon River, you know, I never had a real job. It was always volunteer work with, the rest, you know, Salmon River Restoration Council and, you know, just... Oh, what do they call that when they give you enough for gas and some food for the day to come out? A a stipend. A stipend, yeah. And, you know, cannabis work back in that day and stuff like that. Which you could have gotten gotten in real trouble for back then. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Especially in Siskiyou County. (laughs) (laughs) You 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 can get in trouble wearing a mask in Siskiyou County. Potentially so. Um... So, you know, I came here and I started building houses because, you know, I couldn't find anybody to really, you know, that seemed right to jump on the solar thing. And, you know, I started making my money and got my general contractor's license sometime later and eventually decided I really didn't, you know, and I I was doing solar systems on the side with my general license. Um, And then once the, you know, the recession hit, you know, I just went out on my own, and that's that's about the time I got my um, my electrical C10 license, and um, you know, and just popped out on my own, started doing solar systems um, all over the county, Humboldt, Lake, Sonoma, uh, well, mostly off grid. Mostly you know? off grid, yeah. Well, that's interesting yeah. too. I. I when when i started there was nothing but off grid as as your history right reflected and uh you know i was i was fairly well known in the solar industry when the grid tie craze kicked off after the rolling blackouts of 2000 2001 that winter and uh right and i went from you know 99.97% off grid work to 80% grid tie work in a matter of a year wow and uh and joke that's a big shift (laughs) and joke that i you know that i trained all my competition because i was teaching for multiple different agencies and wholesalers and whatnot and the cec and and ended up training uh an awful lot of the new people to come into the grid tie market and you know, eventually, you know, 10 years into it, realized, oh, my God, this is all red tape. It's cookie cutter, boring. The client, yeah. the clients aren't interesting. And the margins are diving to near zero and started drifting back toward the off-grid where people didn't know what they were doing. The, the, the grid type people never dealt with batteries and... Yep. Realized there was still a pretty strong market for off-grid work, and I've really been doing, you know, 70% off-grid work for the past five, seven years. Right. Yeah, and, and even, you know, really the differentiation in the grid-tied market is really, you know, the cookie-cutter kind of bottom to middle of the barrel and then the really high-quality systems. And that at this point, the high quality inverters are really got like a 20 year lifetime. You know, the modules are really high end and pretty well worth it. You get all the aesthetics as well as, you know, just a top notch product. And, but you pay for it. You know, you're not going to get it for 30 or 47 cents a watt. You know, wholesale, you're, you know, I'm going to pay a dollar a watt kind of a thing. But, 
you know, that's U.S. made and, you know, warranty that would actually, you know, pay for the labor to replace the module, Uh, not uh, just, you know, replace the module cost. Or or a prorated amount of the power loss. Right. Yeah, so yeah, the the market has changed a a whole, whole lot. I I didn't do my first grid-tied system until about eight years ago, right here in Ukiah. Um, There's a, you know, a friend's parents who had very altruistic nature about them and were just like, let's just fill the roof. You know, as much as possible, and hey, they're still getting checks from the city of Ukiah every year. Uh, well, I'm glad yeah. it was in Ukiah because PG&E would be charging them for the transmission of that power. Yeah, um, if they had excess yeah. at the end of the year. Yeah, PG&E is really good at keeping quiet a few certain details from the CPUC so that they can really kind of hang us all by our to- uh, our skinny toes. Uh, speaking of which, there's yeah. there was some news today that. I wanted to bring up, and that's a perfect uh, mention. I'm not sure if you're aware, but somehow some legislator slipped into the bill that was supposed to be voted on today, yesterday, got slipped into the bill for the funding source for keeping Diablo Canyon alive for another 10 years, which I can kind of understand. It's there, and... Um, and we're, we're, we're hurting for baseload that's carbon neutral, so let's not go into that whole discussion, but they snuck in that the funding source for the funds needed to keep it going for another 10 years, we're going to come from the same basic solar tax that the lobby's been, that the utilities have been lobbying the CPUC to put onto rooftop solar. Where you were gonna get, you were gonna get taxed for on-site electricity generation, whether you bought it from them or not. Meaning, solar power you consumed on your own property, produced on your own property, they got to tax. And yeah, Nem Nem Three is a real kind of oh, they're, they're rough scenario. We're expecting a, a new CPUC pro- proposal in a couple of weeks, but anyhow. Uh, you know, thousands of people all responded in in this little twenty four hour window, and and the legislature said, "Oh, okay, no, we need to clarify that language and not make it solar, and not right. make not make it on site solar wow. consumption." Um, so at least that was a good victory. It's like the third time, yeah. the third time the public has rebelled against proposals and and they've backed down. So we've got another one yeah. coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I do kind of understand the Diablo Canyon thing a little bit in that we really do have a peak problem approaching with all the EVs coming online. Yeah, We're, We are really not ready to have 20% of the state be EV cars right now, mm-hmm. even 20%, you know. Well, and well, we've got a lot of room at night, but on the on the grid to, you know, keep those well, actually, systems it's, running it, maxed out 18 hours a day, but... It's now at yeah. it's now at night that we're actually getting in trouble. The evening, uh, the peak power right. the peak power demand in California is still at you know two in the afternoon on a hot summer weekday. But yeah, okay. they don't talk yeah, about it that way anymore because there's so much solar now in California that it's shaved off all the daytime peaks. So it's not that it's right. peak demand; it's that it's 
minimum supply and combined with high demand and that's happening in in the evenings now yeah they can't complain about not having you know enough infiltration of smart inverters that create reactive power anymore you know so we don't have farms with you know causing brownouts in the middle of the state like we used to mm-hmm. but um you know it's uh yeah four to four to ten is a very expensive time to be buying power that's for sure, you know, and if you're getting an SGIP rebate, you know, you're you're basically in the clear to make money, but if you're not, you can kind of break even, you know, just by not buying power from PG&E at the peak rates yeah. and not charging yeah. your battery off the grid. If you've got enough solar to get your battery charged up properly, then on grid, you can, you can kind of reach parity with the cost of the grid and have a greater resiliency and reliability of uh, electricity I'm than what the grid can provide, unless uh, you're living next to a hospital. I'm still a little nervous about the, well, living next to the hospital solves the backup power problem, and so that's part of what you're factoring in. But uh, I'm still a little nervous about the cost of cycling batteries versus the price difference between peak power and off peak power or morning power part peak power yeah based on my modeling software most of the lfp batteries that's lithium iron phosphate batteries you know is is ranging somewhere between 12 and 23 cents a kilowatt hour right over the lifetime of the battery and that's that's a lot better than pg and e at 33 to 38 cents well but versus what's the off what's the off peak part or the morning part yeah, I think so. It's the difference. We, it's not the peak power. It's the difference between the peak power and the and the part peak power that uh, right. that you're actually gaining by charging in the morning and running your house off your batteries in the evening. And yeah, as long as they're charged by solar, it kind of breaks the. Well, no, but you difference. you could have been offsetting the solar on the grid at you know whatever it was twenty six cents. In the morning, and I'm making it up, you know, say it was 26 cents in the morning and 38 cents in the late afternoon, evening, then then it's only 12 cents that you're gaining by doing that. Right. And if you're paying more than 12 cents per kilowatt hour for the, for the battery cycling, you're losing money. Yeah, you know, I have to get more into some of these details. Yeah, well, Alex always complained I was the number cruncher, but didn't know how to do shit with a screwdriver. Oh, oh, I just, I, I apologize to the, to the uh, FCC. FCC, I just boo booed and didn't hit my uh, seven second delay button in time. Uh-huh. Um. My apologies to anyone who's offended out there, and I will report myself to the program director. We're we're getting too yeah. comfortable, Chris. Yeah, it's that it's, I, that it I is, slipped it, back into that uh, barroom talk. It is a really complicated, you know, mathematical mess figuring out all the tariffs and the timing, and then you know having equipment that even has the ability to control. All of these different aspects. Some does, you know, some does. Is a whole other trick in that a lot of manufacturers claim these capabilities and they're not programmable like that. 
And, you know, it's one of the few things that I have to say I like about the Tesla is that they're highly programmable. They've got all the relays in place to handle this stuff, no problem. But, you know, on the other hand, I wouldn't touch a Tesla battery with a 10-foot pole myself. But... You know, you've got so you got to have an inverter or control system that can actually, you know, be programmed properly to do this. Yeah. Like Schneider inverters, which are one of kind of we are kind of old standbys that came from Xantrex and Trace. They don't even produce the documentation for these controls. You have to go figure it out yourself, or you've got to get to level three tech, which is a fight to even get the information on how to do it. Huh. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's, it's a complicated place right now, you know, in the entire industry and that, you know, ultimately it's one of the things that, you know, in one of our future shows where I'm on, I would, I would kind of like to get into some of that control and monitoring system stuff and even talk about some of the edge of microgrid stuff that, you know, the reality of the advancement of controls that I, I really think most of the inverter companies are just really not prepared to handle well the things have changed so fast hey we've got a caller do you want to do you want to entertain the call all right let's see if they're still there oh they didn't hang on when i put them on hold um but if you've got questions for chris or want to comment on anything we've been talking about uh the number here in the Ron O'Brien Studios is 895-2448. And I bet you that's the same caller calling back. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. i got to reach across and turn off the radio. Yep, that's always a good thing. Are you able to turn up the caller volume at all, Doug? Yeah, I am, but that also turns you up, so I want to keep it. He's, He's turning off his radio. I will try to keep my voice less uh, intense. So my question is, I have purchased some 20-year-old panels, Sharp, MD-167U1, 48 cells. 48 cells? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that's an odd one. That is very odd. And I heard Doug once say that you could put... I think those are, those are 72 cells. 167 watts? Yeah. I do remember them. Are you searching the internet, Chris? No. (laughs) So, what's your question, caller? Well, I know that the the maximum voltage input to my uh, FM80 charge control is 150. And these panels have an open circuit voltage of 29. I have six of them in series. That could be 48 cells. But Yeah, it sounds like you could really only do four of them in a series and be safe with the cold weather. The maximum power voltage is only 23 and a half. Right, but, but if it ever, ever goes above that input voltage, it could fry your charge controller. And and so there's, we do temperature correction to calculate what that open circuit voltage would be in cold weather, which will be even higher than the open circuit voltage you're seeing on your spec sheet. Why would there be 
an open circuit voltage if it's, if it's connected to batteries. Uh, because, in the morning. Uh, because the charge controller doesn't connect it to the batteries until there's enough juice out there. Yeah. So in the morning when the sun comes up before there's actually sun on the array, uh, the voltage is at its highest potential for the entire 24-hour cycle. Um, and so it remains open circuit. Um, now, I do have to say that we've, you know, I've come across many self-built systems and we've seen people build them so that they're, they're every day, their open circuit, even in the summertime, is higher than what the spec sheet says. And we've seen charge controllers last 10 minutes in those conditions and we've seen them last 10 years in those conditions. Yeah, yeah. it depends on the electronics. But you're on the edge, yeah. you're on the edge of what could blow it up, so don't go and there. And you can... You can always hear the difference, though. If it's really high, you can actually hear the relay, like, groaning almost with a high pitch. So I should have only five in the string, I guess. Uh, we were four, thinking four. four. Yeah. Yeah, because, see, when your modules get, you know, solar modules are affected by temperature. So the warmer they are, the lower the voltage. The colder they are, the higher the voltage. And they are specced out at 77 degrees Fahrenheit in lab conditions. And lab conditions don't exist out here in the real world, especially in Mendocino, where we have wide-ranging temperatures, unless you're on the coast. Um, and you even, know, even, on the temperatures coast. Per day. even on the even coast, on the you coast. can get down yeah. to minus 5C. Um, For sure. And, uh, and I, it is, honest to God, a 48-cell panel yeah that is an interesting outlier but they do not have uh temperature coefficients but but, but back then i would have expected um you know in sort of generic mendocino county that the that the open circuit voltage might be something like 14 percent higher than what it says on the spec sheet and that would Ooh. that would take you over Five panels blowing it up. Yeah, so stay, that's stay, why you stay really want to stick to four. My my quick calc said four and a half panels is the most you can do. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Very much. I agree. Hey, you're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. A little custom consulting on the air. Yeah, a little off topic, but I'm sure that listener appreciated it. And there are others out there who probably enjoyed that possibility. Here's another, yeah. here's another call. Hello, caller. Oh, evening, gents. I have a question for both of you about the PG&E uh, grab that you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Again, we had our solar put in. By the way, we're, we're on. You know, we are plugged into PG&E, so we're not. You know, we're not off. You know, not off grid. Mm -hmm. But um, okay, we had it done six years ago. Are they trying to do this for new new solar? Or are they trying to do it for people retroactively who've had it for years? There is a retroactive element. We, we don't know what their next proposal is going to be, but in their first two proposals, they did have rec retroactive elements. But uh, part of the state law that they're trying to work around is that, this, that the legislature passed a rule saying that the rules had to be such that it was cost-effective for people to do. It was a reasonable financial investment. Okay. And which they're trying to go against. Which they're trying to go against, but 
but because of that rule, they're they're trying to retroactively enforce it after a certain number of years that the system has been installed. On the first proposal, it was eight years. So you would have two more years you grandfathered in under the old rules, and then you would be switched to the new rules. Where okay, and this might take a while to actually get resolved, too. But right, right. Do either you have a sense of politically how much... Um, Pull they have because at this point they have, have a huge amount of pull, but the oh, public, yeah. public has a huge amount of pull too. And so far, the public has backed them down three times now since, now, since a last very December. Positive, yeah, a positive part of this is that Gavin Newsom seems to actually be listening to the public more. And that if it wasn't for Gavin Newsom jumping in, the CPUC would have probably already gone and accepted their second proposal. He, he was oh. pretty quiet at first. Yeah, he was. The first proposal, he didn't say a word, but the second one, he actually stopped the CPUC from moving forward with it at all and demanded that I, they, I you know, address the public comment. I didn't even know he had that power. Yeah, he as the governor, he you know, I believe they actually appoint the CPUC. He, he does appoint them, but once appointed, they're appointed. Right. Yeah. So I I really question because, you know, most people that sign an interconnection agreement with PG&E and I would recommend that you go back and at least do a, an initial kind of, you know, scanning of your interconnection agreement with PG&E is that generally the rate schedules are supposed to last 10 years. And so, I, you know, I have no idea if there's any legal recourse to them changing those agreements. Okay. You know, broad scale like that or not. Okay, let me ask you a follow-up question. Again, we live right outside of Willits, and actually, I think we did it through a deal with Sonoma Clean Power. Mm -hmm. Does that make a difference? Uh, not not much. You're still on PG&E, and, okay. uh, um, and a, a significant portion, you know, roughly half of your bill or even more than half of your bill is yeah. the transmission costs and not the actual power generation costs. Which, right. I, which I was making jokes about because now PG&E is charging you for the transmission costs if you have net annual excess. Okay, yeah, so they don't like to admit that all their neighboring customers get to benefit from your overproduction in the middle of the day and that they don't have to transmit power to those people. Right. Oh, God, we're yeah. saving them all kinds of money, but they don't crunch that in their numbers when they make yeah. arguments well, we, to the city. And actually, we try and use as much of our electricity during the day as we can for that reason I mean, oh, actually what's probably more important is that you use a minimum amount of energy between you know six in the evening and nine or ten in the evening yeah and yeah, those, well, those that's, time that's of use rate, yeah those do. time we of do. use depending on your scenario starts at four or five and ends at nine or ten yeah we have an ev and we actually charge it during the day because again that's basically when we're using our power for the most part Okay. All right. Well, anyway, uh, thank you both. I don't you, want to take more, you, more time, you, but you, uh, I'm going to follow this very closely because, again, uh, it just seems so counter to what a lot of the goals are that I think we need to shoot for as far as... Oh, it's hugely, it's hugely contradictory, and that's why so many people in the public have been reacting so strongly and have backed them down three times. But there's another proposal coming out in two weeks. From okay. the well, again, they're shameless, so I'm not surprised. And, okay, and, wait, wait. And thank you both, and I, I, um, enjoy I, your show. Thank you. I have one more suggestion for you. Okay, I'll hear it. That, uh, that I think you're better off if you could set up your electric vehicle to charge 
after your rate structure goes off of peak power at 9 or 10 in the evening, whenever that is, oh. on a timer, and charge overnight. Because yes. the power is cheaper between 10 and 8 a.m. or whatever. Um, Absolutely. Then, then that way the solar you're making in the morning, which you're now currently using to charge your car, could be sent back on the grid for a credit at a higher rate than what you would be charging overnight. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, we've had two different people tell us, you know, two different things, but uh, that does okay. You know well, the, well, the key is is that on your bill, it actually identifies your rate tariff, and so you may be on an EV two TOUA or something like that, and you can look that rate structure up what on the, the PGD website, what the and it will are. show you the exact cost per kilowatt hour at different times per day, and that is the that is the golden ticket on when you want to charge your EV. Is the lowest okay. rate? Okay, well, we'll look at that. But for right now, you know, shorthand, the night time is the right time. My guess, my bet. Generally, all the rate structures are are cheapest at night, even commercially speaking. After after you know, at the latest ten in the evening. Okay, yeah. So just plug it in before we go to bed. Yeah, or or put okay. it, or you can actually put it on a timer. Actually, yeah, and some can. of the, some of the cars allow you to set the timing. Oh yeah, no, we actually we have a. Uh, Mustang E and has more bills and whistles than we even know about. So I'm sure <laughs> right. the features. It's scary how many bills and whistles there are. It, it was basically yeah. it's like you're driving around uh, a computer that has wheels is how I <laughs> yep. approach it. Yeah. Okay. And that well, you will you get that and, kind uh, of I'll um, I'll look into that. All right. Thanks Thank for the me. call. We have a lot of calls happening, Chris. So I'm All not, right. I'm not well, gonna get to talk to you. We're just gonna take open lines here. <laughs> Then that one dropped. See it. We'll just roll with it. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Uh, hi. Uh, I just thought you'd like this one. I have a friend over in Grass Valley who affectionately refers to P, G, and E as Pacific Grafton Extortion. <laughs> that is a good one. Pacific Grafton like Extortion. What's yeah. a shame, though, is that they were historically one of the most progressive utilities in the country. Uh, yeah. In the I last 20 years, they have gone the wrong direction oh well you know it's just this whole corporate model has changed and it's just it's really pathetic and it's in, in everything and uh well, i was having some conversation with a friend that you know uh if we want to remain a democracy i think we got to really change it and put uh, put corporations in their place which is to serve us not the other way around yeah. Yeah, and there there is an interesting component of it in that originally PG and E was not an investor owned utility. Oh, I didn't know on that. the stock market. You know, they were. Yeah. My understanding is they were an employee owned company, and you know now they've become investor owned utilities. So they are on the stock market. So there's this problem we have in this country with investor-owned corporations that they have a fiduciary responsibility to do everything they can to make the most profit. Yeah, that's And true. we're yeah. it's a bit of a problem with utilities because these are utilities. So there's there are certain mandates federally and statewide that require utilities to do something that's a little bit more public benefit, but it's not the same as a public benefit nonprofit corporation which is what most of the, you know, locally owned utilities like Ukiah Electric are. 
and the, so they yeah. invest all of their profits back into the business community to benefit the community that owns them, which is why Ukiah Electric is such a great utility compared to PG&E. Well, when and I lived in New Mexico, we lived on, on a, they, uh, they had a cooperative uh, or collective right. uh, uh, model. It'll work just fine. Uh, you, know, you probably had very, very low electrical rates. We did. And yeah. The power rarely went off. Yeah, the idea of spending 20 cents a kilowatt hour was, like, yeah. foreign. Yeah, my I was always disappointed to tell my mom and dad whenever they'd ask me about putting solar in on their house that it wouldn't be very cost effective because my hometown of Oberlin had their own municipal utility and and you know it was like six cents a kilowatt hour. Oh my god! <laughs> mind that you, is like mind you, history, this, this was twenty years ago, but you know it's it's twelve now or something, and probably. <laughs> But yeah, Ukiah's up to I think thirteen point eight. They just increased their rates after twenty one years. Wow! They were at twelve for over twenty one. Yeah, amazing. But it's still cost effective on the solar. Yep. Although not as cost effective as when you're paying thirty eight on PG and E. Exactly. So that was always yeah. an, an always an interesting point in the classes I would teach. I was like, you know, Ukiah has some of the most progressive rules for solar connection. They'll even cut you check for net annual think, access at the retail think, rate. And there's still not that much solar in Ukiah. It's because their rates are so low. And I think that's part of why they do those NEM checks, because it really, they do recognize the community benefit of your excess production in the daytime because, you know, electricity, your your appliances act like a vacuum to the electrical line. So you turn one on, and as close, wherever those kilowatt hours are, the closest ones are going to go right to your appliance. So they don't have to distribute or transmit power to those loads. And they see the benefit of that and that it's reduced, light, you know, cost on the lifetime of their equipment. I, I think that caller hung up. Are you there, caller? No. So thanks for the call, caller, because we had full lines, multiple people, and they suddenly all just dropped. There's one back again. You're inspiring people, Chris. I hope so. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, I've been away from the radio for a few minutes, so I don't know if you guys have moved on. But um, first of all, I, I used to write my checks Pacific Graft and Extortion back in the late 70s. <laughs> so you knew that term already. In, huh? in, in the, yes, down when I lived on the peninsula. And they took the checks, and they cashed the checks, and they credited my account. So they have to know that that's exactly who they are, because they got no problem with it. But, um, <laughs> you you I mean, actually wrote it out that way, and they I actually it. wrote it out to Pacific Graft and Extortion. I went down to the little office. They took my check, they gave me a receipt, they credited my account <laughs> every month for, like, years. That's a confession. That is, yep, a confession. That is, that is some classic I mean, beauty. I mean, really? that, that was what I said. That was 40 years ago. That so, is poetry you know, and Bob, Bob you've been into mischief for more than 40 years, I know. Yeah, that um, is poetry oh. in motion. But what people need to realize is, um, I don't think they do, PG&E is not a standalone company. P 
PG&E is a fully owned subsidiary of Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E LLC. Okay, it's the most profitable subsidiary. But if we're going to do anything with Pacific Graft and Extortion, uh, we got to get after the main The LLC. The LLC. Uh, The example I'll use is if General Motors, who owns Chevy and Buick and all those different name brands, went to their those boards and said, hey, you need to show a profit. We need X amount of money return on our stocks, so you have to do whatever it takes to get that done. And Chevy goes out and does it, and then people start getting killed. Well, you don't just shoot sue Chevy. You sue General Motors. And that's something I don't get about all these lawsuits. Uh, well, no, not the Pacific graft and extortion. No, note the LLC name on the end of the corporation. Yeah, but it doesn't yeah. matter. They're still they you they still even if they don't pay money, you expose who they are and what they are and what they're doing. You know, so that that's a big start. But yeah, and, yeah, that, and, that, and, that and, does mean that people have to not settle because when they settle, yeah, cases, well, that, that, that means that then, the then they yeah. get sealed. That's right. That's it, and it's sealed. So, you know, that's what I mean. It's people need to realize is that when you start suing people, you don't just stop at PG&E. You go all the way up the ladder, and you make it very uncomfortable for everybody. And that's the only way things get changed is when you make it very uncomfortable for the people up at the top. Yeah, this really does point out a serious problem in our society that could be, you know, a whole other series of shows on another show. Corporations and democracy. Yeah, there's you know, amend the Constitution to end corporate personhood, because this is a big part of our problem. But but, but back to to energy generating, like I say, is, is until... Enough people just simply say, no, sorry. And PG&E's already starting to feel the pinch. But, yeah, you know, until they just simply say, sorry, um, they're the biggest game in town. And the big kicker with PG&E is they control all the power transmission lines. They control all the heavy-duty, high-power transmission lines. And most of the distribution. And, and that's what I mean. They own the power lines, so they could, they control the distribution. They own the the hydraulic uh, dams up up in Oregon and Washington that was making all sorts of cheap energy for them that they were charging us an arm and a leg for. That's another thing. There should be different rates depending on how much PG&E is charging. It used to be PG&E. I'm sorry to get going, but PG&E used to only be allowed X amount of profit percentage of what their bottom line was. Oh, they still are. That's that's why in the 60s they used to do all this worthless, useless advertising. They didn't need to advertise so they could get more money and profit. It would really be good if somebody else did a little research. And I'll get off, but I heard the Pacific Graph of Extortion, and I just, <laughs> I just had to relay that, you know, I wrote checks for those guys in the 80s, and it's right there, Pacific Graph and Extortion, so... They know. I do have to say that have a good has mostly gotten out of the generation that's most not complete. Oh, you just yeah. got really fuzzy, Chris. Yeah, I'm going to go. Thanks, Doug. Have hey, take one. care, Bob. Yeah, so one little thing I was trying to say there is that PG&E has mostly gotten out of the generation business and yeah. that most and they, of the dams in Washington and Oregon 
have been sold off to Pacificor and Calpine and other energy generation focused companies. That was that was mostly part mostly of the like 90, 1996 uh, uh, reform. Right, they which were, also kind of like between then and Enron is that, that period. Well, of, yeah, and of uh, restructuring <laughs> and Enron uh, played a whole different role. But yeah, right. they they were asked to start getting out of generation and split utilities into generation facilities and transmission facilities, and they were allowed to keep a certain small amount of their hydro. Yeah, they have most of the hydro plants up in the Sierras still, as yeah. PG&E. Yeah. Um, but mostly, they're just a... They're just a DoorDash. Meaning... Yeah, you know. You know. They're, they're taking power from other companies generation facilities and shipping it to your door they're not really a generation company anymore they're a transmission right. company and i i really feel people's pain i mean i've i've lived in california since 1999 i have been on grid for two and a half of those years and for the last four years where i live is the main line between redwood valley and lake mendocino which is also the main line from the high voltage going to the mills, the hospitals, police department, all that kind of stuff. And we are off grid. We decided to not even connect. Now we were lucky enough to get some really great batteries in an auction for really cheap, which helped make that decision a lot easier because we got those batteries for 10% of their cost. Wow. And they were brand new, but you know, we don't even know there's an outage. Like now I know there's an outage because I get a notification because my shop has, doesn't have power, uh-huh. not my home. Yeah. That's it. You know, it was funny during the power safety shutdowns of a couple of years ago and people would keep talking about the outages and I would keep teasingly saying, what outage? I didn't have a power outage. Yep. I'm off grid too. Especially if they have a generator. Well, I, d- I didn't even, even have to run my generator because it was the middle of summer when power's overflowing at noon anyhow yeah unless it's smoky and there's ash falling yes yes if there's too much smoke it's noticeably lower yeah that's the problem for people that are doing backup only systems that don't have generator inputs you know when it gets ashy and smoky suddenly they can't keep going oh i wouldn't dream of doing an off-grid system without a backup generator unless it was or even a I don't. I don't even do grid backup systems that don't have a generator uh, option. Yeah, I refuse, yeah. which is part of why we don't touch Tesla and. Yeah, Tesla. Sonin I was going to ask that earlier systems. when you were talking about Tesla. It still doesn't have an interface for a generator, huh? No, they're not so, doing it. So, who do you like? Have you worked with Solarks? Um, I have. N- I have worked with Solark originally when they were new. Uh, back when it was still built, you know, engineered and built in the USA, and they were, you know, had it plastered all over their, you know, their site that they were veteran-owned and operated. Um, but, uh, you know, they had some deficiencies back then, like their version one that, you know, they, they kind of burned us, where they sent us a unit. And, hey, you know, tell us what you think. And, you know, and it was, we, we got it. And it was like, hey, has anybody over there ever read the National Electrical Code? <laughs> um, why are your breakers don't have a dead dead front? Which, you know, to folks that don't know, a dead front is a metal panel that's mounted to the box that does not allow you to touch any live terminals. 
And so you had to pull the cover off to get to the breakers. It doesn't necessarily have to be metal, but there has to be a a physical blockade between you and the wire connections behind the breakers. And in a Solark, that means you're exposed to 600-volt DC nominal, uh, 122 40-volt AC nominal on your output and on your input on the generator and then your batteries. Um, and, and, you know, and, and there's I, a couple other kind I, of side think, systems like Humless that they have weird interfaces and that I think they pulled, you know, a software engineer in to, that built them kind of a weird interface. And, that, and, didn't, and didn't follow any standard protocols, so nothing else yeah, could work and, with it. And they're also, you know, they're one of the only companies out there in the entire world that's offering a battery inverter that is transformer-less, which means that it has very little surge capacity. And they claimed a three-time surge capacity from the very beginning. And just in the last few months, they finally revised it down to 2x, which means two times. And I still don't believe them. And that well, you put a twelve certain, kilowatt. Certainly, solar, if they weren't running on batteries. Well, these are battery-based inverters. Well, no, but it can run off of non-battery. Really? Yep. The maximum power. Just pow- the solar only. Just the solar only. Yep. It'll do backup during an outage on the isolated circuit with just the solar only and no batteries. Okay, so similar to like SMA's secure power supply right. kind of a thing. Right. Okay. Well, that that makes some sense, but there's but there's, there's some no surge stuff there for isolation. Um. Yeah, and that's always been the problem is that solar can't provide you the surge. There's mm-hmm. no capacity there to do that. And you know, and just to help clarify for people, if you have pumps like a well pump or a pressure pump or a septic pump because your septic tank is above your location of output of septic line, then you have to have a pump. And to start a pump, you have anywhere from two to five times the surge rating of the pump. And so that has to fit within the capacity of your inverter. And so we've seen, you know, somebody goes out and puts a 12 kilowatt Solark in place on a site that has a well pump, a pressure pump, and a septic pump. And when the power goes out and people are using water and then they turn it back on, two of those pumps turn on at the same time and the Solark can't handle it. Where all of our old school kind of stuff, Sunny Islands, Schneider XWs, Outback Radians, all of these things have a much greater capacity for that surge. And that, you know, I've put two Sunny Islands in for 12 kilowatts. And all three pumps turn on at the same time, no problem, unless they're very large pumps. But, you know, I've talked to, you know, gentlemen that owns Quattro Solar down in Marin, and they will instead put in two 12-kilowatt Solarks to deal with the problem. And then Mm. maybe even still put in relay control so that only two pumps can turn on at the same time. And that's just, you're getting into some complicated energy management stuff that is really not necessary to do so, if you just choose the right equipment. So, so you're you're a fan of the sun, of the Sunny Islands and I am still the Schneiders. a fan of the Sunny Island because of the power quality. I deal with a lot of ham radio operators. Uh-huh. Um and so Sunny Island has a maximum three percent total harmonic distortion. Which means that the power quality is better than utility grade. How's the so, how's the solar on the 
on the noise for him. They they on their spec sheet it says five percent max, but you know testing these things is very complicated. You need some very expensive meters, and you need to know what you're doing. Um, it's something that most electricians, especially solar off grid or not, have no idea how to do. Mm-hmm. And it's you know and well, I most electricians wouldn't know how to do. No, I mean most electricians aren't dealing with frequency much and. You know, where I mean, part of the reason why I like the Sunny Islands is because I do prefer to build an AC coupled system rather than a DC coupled, unless it's small. Even off, even off grid. Yes, absolutely. Yep, safer. It's just a safer scenario, and so you know, four kilowatts is kind of my line. So if you have three and a half kilowatts of solar then I will very likely just do a DC coupled mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. because you're dealing with such small inverters, you yeah. know, the cost yeah. of that a single, a single charge, charge controller. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but if you're getting beyond that and you have a single array, you know, I can, I can, you know, get you an inverter anywhere from, you know, 3.8 to 7.7 to even 30 kilowatt hours or, you know, kilowatt capability that will interface with these inverters and that, you know, and that's part of why I love the sunny Island is because, you know, it's a six kilo, literally a 5.75, but we call it a six kilowatt inverter to make it easy, but it can handle 12 kilowatts of solar. No problem. And it, you know, and a, and it's one of the only truly AC coupled systems where if you're dealing with Outback or Radian in the winter time, and your generator turns on because your battery gets low in the evening time, then you have to have a solar lockout relay and that they cannot handle the generator and the solar at the same oh, time. But the SMA system does it seamlessly. Interesting. Never a problem. Hey, we're, and the, we're getting to the top of the hour here, and uh, we need to make a transition to the next show. And we, oh, yeah. we never even talked about one of our major topics we were going to talk about, and that was what some of your favorite shows would be coming up. So we're going to have to talk about that off the air, and, and I'm hoping okay. you'll be able to make it back in two weeks. Yeah, I think I can do that. That sounds good. All right, and, and think about what topics you want to run. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've got some notes here. So we we should say good night for the evening and leave room for Jamie Roberts and Radiogram and I'm going to put on a little bit of uh, Almond Brothers to carry over the changing of the captain seat. Yeah, Chris, well, thank you for joining us. Chris Love uh, being and a special guest you, co-host. Thank you, Mendo, for tolerating me. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Take care. Good night, everybody. You too. Be be well, everybody. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.